Sharing a meal is one of the simplest ways to connect with others. Eating together is vital for our health. Countless research has been done to determine what happens when we sit down with someone and share food. It influences us in a positive way and increases our feelings of well-being and community. When we connect with others over food, our levels of happiness rise and these good feelings spill out into the wider community. Is it no wonder then that Jesus chose to eat with others? Even those whom society had cast out, he shared a meal with them, listened to them, accepted them for who they were, and connected with them on a critical level. What happens when we have dinner with Jesus? Good morning. I hope you guys are doing well. We're in this uh, third week now of Dinner with Jesus. Today's going to be a little bit different. The dinner we're going to look at isn't a dinner where they sit around a table. Today's dinner is going to occur out in the open with 5,000 people where Jesus provides dinner in a way that nobody expected it. If you have heard that story a hundred times before, I hope that you hear it in a new way uh, here this morning. But let me start this way. Uh, I grew up around Casas. I did. I started coming here when I was nine years old. Um, I did. And so I made my way through children's ministry. I made way, my way through adolescence here, the youth ministry. I remember when I was in middle school, it was the summer I was going into my eighth grade year. My mom made me go on this trip with the middle school. I didn't want to. And it's because this trip was to Sells, Arizona, and it was in the middle of June. And that did not sound exciting. Um, if you've never been to Sells, Arizona, it, it's a great place. There's just not a lot going on there. It is very hot. Um, and what had happened is the youth pastor, his name was Phil. He built a relationship with the community, some of the elders. Uh, if it, in the Tohono O'odham Reservation there and, so, and some church leaders. And so we would go and we would have like a children's, you know, children's camp more or less where we teach Bible lessons and we play games and we do all these different things while we were there. Uh, and, and, you know, just run around and run amok and have a great time. And we'd come in and do this for a week and everybody in the community would come out and be a part of this. It was a big, a big thing. So we would train for this for a really long time. In the end, I was really grateful that my mom had me, had me go. I have some really fond memories of cells. One year it rained. This has nothing to do with my sermon, but I won't tell you anyway. One year it rained uh, and a bunch of Colorado River bullfrogs, you know, the toads or whatever came out of the ground. So I caught five of them, hid them in the girls' sleeping bags on the trip. And it's like a hallmark moment for me. I had a really good time on that trip. I loved it. There's another time where I just remember seeing kids running everywhere and we're teaching them stories and leading them things and people are asking questions and it was just so much energy and fun. And I was like, this is wonderful. I was so glad that my mom actually made me go on this thing. But like I said, we trained forever. I remember at one particular training, I don't remember what I was doing. I don't remember what we were talking about. I just know we were in a group together. We were working through some of the stuff that we were supposed to be teaching, some of the activities we were going to be leading. And Phil, the youth pastor at the time, he goes, Ryan, can you come here for a second? And I did the thing that every student does in that moment where they're like, oh crud, what did I do? You know, am I in trouble? And he pulls me aside and he goes, Ryan, I just want you to know that I've been watching you as you have been, you know, training in these moments and I've been watching what you're doing. And I just want you to know, I think God is gonna use you to impact the lives of other people. And I wanted you to know that. And I don't remember what he said after that because he said more stuff. I don't remember what I said after that, but I remembered that moment so profoundly. That became this like, game-changing type of moment in my life, that very simple conversation with this person, because that was the first time anybody in my life had ever told me anything like that. 
It was the very first time in my life that anybody had ever told me that God wanted to do something in the lives of other people or significant in this world, not like through me, not just around me, not just like in spite of me, not just all these, but, but actually partner with me, do something through me. Now I had heard a bunch of other stuff along the way. I had heard like, God really wants me to behave. <laughs> I'd heard a lot of that. I had heard God really wants me to like be a good person. He wants me to go to church. He wants me to read my Bible. He wants, especially in the morning time for like 30 minutes. That was always like a designated thing. He wants me to do this. He wants me to pray. He wants me to go to church. Like all those pieces. I'd heard all of this stuff. There are all of these, these things about who God, how God wanted me to act or what God wanted me to do. I never had a person pause and look at me and just say that the God of the universe most all-powerful being in the entire universe, he actually has good things he wants to do in this world, and that he wanted to use my life to impact the life of somebody else. It was crazy to me, because I was like, that's not how it works, because I'd read my Bible, and I don't have, like, the name priest attached to me. I'm not a king. I'm not a prophet. Have you ever had this moment where you think about, like, these things, and you're like, I'm not, like, the special person. I'm not a priest. I'm not a prophet. I don't, I don't have a title. I'm not, like, a well-to-do religious person. Even in our modern day, right, if you were to think, like, man, God's going to use somebody, the person you imagine, you're like, yeah, and they became a missionary and went to a really difficult place somewhere, and they did difficult things. Or they had, like, some title attached to their name because they were, like, a religious somebody or other. Like, you don't insert your own name into that. Like, you're not a part of that story. It's this weird thing. And then somebody paused and they looked at me and they said, Ryan, God wants to impact the world through you. God wants to impact someone else's life through you. And this became huge for me. It did. This became such a big deal. That was the moment that I realized God wanted to not just observe my life, like Santa Claus, you know, he knows, he sees you when you're sleeping, knows when you're awake. Like God was not a stalker on my life, but that God actually wanted to partner in my life, be with my life, wanted to work through my life and do something significant in his story with me as a part of it. And that was such a powerful thing to realize. I just had never realized that. I thought life was like you went to bed, you woke up, you tried to do the good things you were supposed to do and you had the responsibilities and then you watched some television and then you eat, sleep, repeat. And yet the all-powerful God of the universe wants to partner, wants to do something significant. This was so big. Some of you might be wondering, so is that the moment that you felt called to go into ministry? <laughs> no, no, no. At that moment in time, I had zero desire to go into ministry. I thought ministry was composed of boring people who talked entirely too long about boring things in front of others. And that irony is not lost on me in terms of what I do now. I get it. But that's what I thought. I was like, no, I don't want to go into ministry. This isn't about me like doing a church thing. This is about my actual everyday life. This became the moment that I realized my life had this opportunity on a daily basis, had this opportunity where God actually wanted to partner with me. And man, did that change things for me. It was striking how different that was. God wanted to use my life to impact other people's lives in the world around me. And I thought about this. I was thinking about, okay, so I'm going to be talking in this dinner for, with Jesus series, and how do I want to approach this? What do I say? And man, I thought of all of this. I thought of what Phil did for me that day. And so I would love to ask you to simply hear me this morning when I tell you that the all-powerful God of the universe wants to use you to impact people around you for you. God wants to use your life to impact someone's life. Don't miss this. If some of you are like, yeah, I know, that's like we all know that. No, don't miss this. I mean this. This isn't me also, just so you know, this isn't me saying in your lives, everybody do better. No, this isn't me saying, you know, God has some things he wants from you, so you need to try harder or buckle up and just get ready because 
you're not on the boat and you need to get on. And you're like, here's we go. It's heading this direction. Like, let's go this direction. No, this isn't me saying try harder, do better. This is me saying in the life you have right now, in your everyday, normal, right now life, whatever it is that you are living, wherever it is that you, the space that you are occupying, God wants to use you. He wants to use your life to impact the life of somebody else. And if you're sitting here going, well, sure, we're in a church. Churches are supposed to do that. That's what we should be talking about. Yeah, I know. That's really true and it's good and beautiful. I'm not talking about that right now. So I'm not talking to all of us right now. I am talking to each of us right now as individuals, which means this isn't me talking to an entity that is Casas or a group of people that are the church. This is me talking to you as an individual. I want you specifically to hear me this morning when I tell you God wants to use you. He wants to use your life to impact someone else's life. Your life, as you currently live it, isn't just a monotonous thing that you go through. It's not just a set of series of obligations of work and student, maybe your student, whatever it is that you occupy. It's not just carrying on responsibilities and things because you have to, and then you hopefully, you know, watch a show and kind of tune out at the end and wake up the next morning and do the. No, your life is loaded with potential. Your life is loaded with purpose simply because God, like God, the God of the entire universe actually wants to partner with you in your life to do something significant in the life of somebody else. This is huge, friends. And I want you to know that. God is gonna use you to positively impact someone else. God is going to use your life to positively impact the life of somebody else. God is gonna use your story to help tell his story in this world. And it's true because it's just how he works. Your life is so much more than what you might think of it right here and right now because, and I don't know if you've heard me say it, so I'm gonna say it again, God is going to use you to impact the life of someone else. God is gonna use you to impact someone around you. This is how he works. And he's been doing this from the very beginning. In a very personal way with individuals. When Jesus began his ministry, he began at like the age of 30. And you would think that when Jesus begins his ministry at the age of 30, he's like, okay, I've been saving this all up for 30 years. And now here you go. And I'm just going to go full Messiah and do all the things. What's the first thing that he does? He starts gathering a group of people around him, isn't he? He knows that this isn't, Jesus wasn't like a lone, lone hero type of person. Like Jesus isn't Batman, who's the superhero who works alone because he just doesn't mix well, right? Jesus immediately is like this mission, this thing, this endeavor to love the whole world. It's going to need to be a group effort. So I'm going to need to gather some people with me and I'm going to need to empower them to those things as individuals. Like, let's do this. And so he goes and he gathers 12 disciples. And can we think about who those disciples were for just two seconds? Like you think about it, have you ever paused? We read the Bible where they're like the polished version of themselves, you know, where they write some amazing things and you're like, man, the wisdom there. But do you know who they were when they started this whole deal? It was crazy. Most of them were fishermen. Do you know that? Yeah, most of them are fishermen. I'm just going to let you know that wasn't a prestigious occupation to have. There weren't a bunch of rabbis out there being like, man, if we just got a few more fishermen in our ranks, we'd really do some things. It wasn't how that went. These are a group of people who were, like most of them were fishermen. And that means that they worked in the family business because they were born into that family who was a bunch of fishermen. So they probably worked with their dad. They probably worked with their family because that's just how life had shaken out. And that's who they were. Some of them were other things like Simon. He's a disciple. He was a zealot. 
If you don't know what a zealot is, a zealot was a person deeply entrenched in the political arena of that particular era who wanted to overthrow the man, a.k.a. Rome. And so they would wear daggers under their cloaks, and if they were ever had the opportunity to assassinate a Roman official and take somebody down for the sake of overthrowing the man, like they would, they would do just that. And this is what Simon was. He was a zealot. He would have been a hoot to have at a party. Right? He's that awkward person where you're like, nobody talk to him. Don't ask the questions. We've all made rules ahead of time. That's Simon. Right? And then there's Matthew. Matthew's a tax collector. That means in some ways, Matthew's kind of like a thief. At the very least, he values money over people because what he's been doing is he's been collecting taxes from other people, charging them too much, skimming off the top, keeping that for himself, sending the rest off to Rome while his countrymen, fellow countrymen and brothers suffer. And Jesus looks and he goes to each of these people and he says, I would like you to come and follow me. That's crazy. But it's like really good news too because we're not that different from these guys. It's a lot easier to see us as one of the 12 disciples than maybe somebody with the name and the figure and and all the other pieces. Like they, they could be like us. And you know, it's significant that it tells us that they had jobs. You know why that's significant? Well, because every young person ended up growing up and going through like rabbinic school. So they all studied Torah and they all studied the, the Jewish ways of life and, and religion. And then if they had an aptitude for it, it was about age 14 that they would try to follow a rabbi. And if that rabbi said, yes, you can do that and accepted them, then they followed that rabbi around and they became a disciple. If that rabbi said, no, you cannot follow me, then they went back home and they got a job in the family business. So what does it tell you that all of these people had jobs, guys? These are all the people that religion looked at and were like, nah. These are all the people that religion essentially looked at and said, I don't think they have what it takes. I don't think that they have the skills to cut it. They don't have the qualities. They don't possess the ability. They lack something. Or for whatever reason, they just didn't make the cut. They have jobs back home in the family business because they did not move up at age 14 with everybody else. And Jesus goes to these people and he says, come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Think of that. I will make you fishers of men, which is Jesus looking directly at the disciples and saying, come and follow me. I want your life to impact someone else's life in this world. And I want to show you how to do it. Come follow me. This is a huge deal. He looks at them and says, God is going to use you, your life, to impact someone's life because they are followers of Jesus. They're disciples. And you know what? So am I, and so are you. And we're in great company if that's the metric we need to hold ourselves up to. If the early disciples are all it, all it takes, then that means there's lots of room for people like me and people like you to step into this particular moment. And that's important because from the very beginning, and we see it again and again, so I say it to you once again, God wants to use your life to impact someone's life because it's what he does and it's how he works. And I mean that not just for all of us, I mean that for each of us. I mean it for you. Think about that for two seconds. It's a beautiful thing, right? And that brings us to our dinner with Jesus. Luke chapter nine. We read this story, like I said, of, uh, of this crowd gathering with the disciples and Jesus and it gets to the end of the day and the people are hungry and the disciples go to Jesus and they're like, we need to send all these people home. And Jesus looks at them and he says, no, you feed them. And they say, all we have is some loaves and some fishes. And he goes, that'll do. And And then he feeds the people. And it's this miraculous moment where this entire crowd is fed with a very little bit of food. We're gonna work our way through that passage here this morning. Luke chapter nine, beginning at verse 10. It says, on their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and he withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him. 
And he welcomed them and he spoke to them of the kingdom of God and he cured those who had need of healing. So this is how this story begins. Let me explain what's going on. So the disciples, if you look at the beginning of Luke 9, Jesus had sent them out. So he looked at each of them and essentially been like, okay, you've been following me around. You've been learning some things. I want you to go do the same thing. Go and preach the kingdom of God, which was essentially him saying, go and tell people that God is not as far away as they might think. Go let them know that he is far closer than they ever could have possibly imagined that the kingdom of God is here. It's among you. Go tell the people. So go and preach the kingdom of God. And he says, and go heal people who need it. Go do this. And so they had gone and they were out teaching and they were doing these things. And then they'd come back and that's where they find them. And they're reporting to Jesus. And Jesus looks at them and is like, man, you guys got to be tired. Because you imagine if you're a disciple who Jesus sends like, go out and do this yourself with all those things. And you're just like, wait, what? And he goes, and by the way, don't take very much with you. Just like trust and depend on other people. You're going to come back from that a little worn out from that experience. Jesus looks at them and he goes, okay, so let's go to a desolate place. Right? Some of the other translations here, uh, or not the other translations, some of the other gospel accounts, they talk about it where it says, Jesus goes, let's go to a desolate place. I believe it's in Mark, uh, where he says in Mark chapter six, come away, let's come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. So he looks at the disciples and he goes, let's go on a retreat. Let's go to a desolate place. That's a place where there's no people and there's limited resources, which is why there's no people. Let's go where no one is so that we can just be, you guys can rest, let's go on a retreat. And so they go. Now, when they leave, there's a crowd of people. And if they just looked at the crowd and said, guys, you need to go home. We're going to go to a desolate place to rest. The crowd's not going to listen. They're not having that. And so they get in a boat and they go sail off because the crowd's not going to chase you through the water. And they go sail off to go find a desolate place where they can go be. And this crowd is so enraptured by these people. They're so caught up in this moment that Mark tells us they actually began to run along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, chasing after, trying to get to where Jesus is going so that they can be there when he arrives. They, they, they're not going to let him go to a desolate place. So they go looking for this place. When they finally get there, imagine the disciples going, finally, okay, cool. We get to go rest. We can talk about our experience. We're just going to get to breathe a little bit. And you see the herd of people making its way around the Sea of Galilee, trying to get to you at that particular moment. It's crazy, isn't it? And they all begin to gather. And you know what's interesting is Jesus doesn't send them away. They show up at this place. If I'm the disciples, I get out of that boat and I look around and I'm like, Jesus, you got to take care of this. And Jesus walks out and Luke says he welcomed them. Matthew tells us, and he had compassion on them. Mark tells us not only did he welcome them and have compassion on them, but he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. And so he gathers them together and he begins to minister to them and he teaches them that God is not as far off as they thought, that he's right here. And he begins to heal them and this massive crowd of about 5,000 people gather around. And friends, I wanna pause here. So I'm going to remind you, God is going to use your life to impact somebody else's life. And if he's going to do that, and because he's going to do that, I guess is a better way that I should say this, brings me to my first point here this morning, and it's this. Your life has an audience. And I just want you to think about it for two seconds. God wants to use your life to impact someone's life. And so I want you to know your life has an audience. Now, the truth is the disciples weren't looking for a crowd of people, were they? They're probably trying to get away from one. They were trying to go on a retreat. They were trying to go rest. They're not looking for an audience of people, but it didn't change the fact that their life had one. 
Because they had been out ministering to people, they had been loving people, caring about people. And what had happened is when people in the surrounding community began to see what real love looks like, when they began to encounter what real grace actually was, they're so hungry for it, they didn't even need to be invited to follow. They chased it down along the Sea of Galilee. They ran after it to get a better view. When they got a sense that there was actually power to heal lives and there was actually goodness that could meet them where they were and that God wasn't nearly as far away from them as they thought, this was such good news for them that they chased it down. Why? Because whether the disciples wanted it or not, their life had an audience that was paying attention to who they were and what they said and what they did. And there were things that they cared about in this. And friends, the same is true for you. Your life has an audience. I know we don't think about it that way. But it does. Your life has an audience. People around you are paying attention to who you are, to what you say, to what you do, to the things that matter most to you. And quite frankly, if God is going to use your life to impact the life of, another pe- of other people, he's going to use your life to impact that audience. So we've got to open our eyes to that truth. You know, a few years ago, my youngest daughter, uh, she went through a difficult situation at school. She got in the, just a tiff with one of her friends. I don't remember the content of this. I don't even remember why this happened. But she's just learning. She's young. She was like in third grade or something. And she's learning how to relate to other people and, and friendships and how to work things out. I don't know if you remember this. It's hard. Kids start crying and they get frustrated. They make each other mad. And so the best of friends in a single day blow up. And there's drama that ensues and craziness that ensues and all that stuff. And then by the end of the day, they're like hugging it out. They're like, I'm sorry. And then, you know, we're friends again. And they work all the pieces out and they're exhausted because it has been a day and they're sitting in class. And now there's two little girls sitting in class and they both just have tear-stained eyes and they've made it through, but they're just fatigued by the whole thing. And her teacher walks by and her teacher's just trying to teach. Like she's not trying to do peer mediation. She's not trying to do all this. She's just trying to teach. Any of you who are teachers in the room are like, Yes. Like, I feel this, I know this. And she walks by and she looks at the girls and goes, ladies, we're still trying to work through a lesson. I'm gonna need you to get it together. And my daughter, without skipping a beat, looks at her teacher and says, my dad says that just because you're not comfortable with your emotions doesn't mean that I have to be uncomfortable with mine. <laughs> yeah. It was a really fun parent-teacher conference the next week. Yeah, after that moment. Now, I never told my daughter to say this to her teacher. I never even told my daughter this about her teacher. Do you know why she said this? Because my life has an audience and that in fact is something that I say and speak from time to time in my life just as something to understand about how emotions work. And she's paying attention whether I like it or not. And sometimes she says it in moments that I wish she had not. And sometimes I have to go back to a teacher and apologize. (laughs) But she's paying attention because my life has an audience. If you have kids, you know this, right? Don't raise your hands. How many parents in here have ever had a child say a word that you didn't know they knew way earlier than you thought they should ever know it? And you suddenly are like, oh, crud, I need to change some things. Because your life has an audience. Some of you, if you're sitting in here, you're like, I don't have kids. This doesn't relate to me. Your life has an audience too. All you have to do to just understand the truth of this is pause and ask anybody who you spend any time with, whether it's a coworker, a friend, a neighbor, I don't care who it is, and just say, you spend some time around me. What are the things you think I care about? What are the things you've noticed about me? You're gonna start to realize they've got a list of things. You have a list of things about the people around you. You're observing people all the time because why? Your life has an audience. Now, this isn't me encouraging you to live up to everyone's expectations. That'll pin you to the ground and that's not a fun way to live. This is me simply saying 
that there's this amazing opportunity around you. See, I hate that my life has an audience sometimes. I do, if I'm honest. You know why? Like, my family. I hate that my family gets to see the worst of me sometimes. Right? They get to see the absolute, like, laid bare worst of me sometimes. I hate that. I always wish I could just leave the room and step in as the best of me all the time. They get a front row seat to see all that. But I also kind of love it, too. Because there's things in my life that I deeply care about. There's things that God's put in my heart that I deeply care about that I want them to see. I want my daughter. As much as sometimes I hate that she's my audience, I also want my daughter to see that this is what it looks like to be unconditionally loved by God and you can trust it and anchor your life in it. I want my daughter to see that forgiveness is a real thing and we don't have to hide from our faults and failures. We can step into the fullness of that moment and let, it, let grace abound more and more. And I want my daughter to see what a life as a gift actually lived looks like. And I mess it up all the time. Ask her, <laughs> she'll tell you, she's got a list. But I like that she's my audience I, because I care about her and that there's things I want for her and I I wanna bring that to the forefront of my life. Do you see this, friends? Your life has an audience. It's your family. It's your kids. It's your friendships. And just like I acknowledge, it's hard, isn't it, that they're gonna see some of the worst of you? They're gonna see you at your most raw. But isn't it beautiful? What are the things in your life, in your heart, in your desire that you wanna bring forward in that moment? What are the things that you care about that God has put on your heart that you want your kids, your family, your friends, those relationships that you value to see? right? Where you get to show them what real love looks like. Your life has an audience. It's your coworkers. We don't always think about this. You know, I have to apologize more in the workplace than any other part of my life. I do. Somebody who works for me just started smiling in this room right now and laughed, right? I do. People know this. I have to apologize more in the workplace than in any other place. I hate that. But I also love that people get to see me try and fail and still try to rise again to the occasion because Christ is with me and anchors me and gets to move through that. I love that we get to wrestle with what does it mean to have an honest relationship with God and move forward. I love that we get to wrestle with, wrestle with the fact that people are not perfect and working together is hard and it, it takes just a lot of honesty and transparency and work to be able to do those things. I love all of that. I want my life to have an audience because I think God tells beautiful stories through it and does beautiful things in it. Same for you. Your life has an audience. It's the people in your community. It's the cashier at the grocery store. It's the person on the road next to you. I know we're not allowed to mention them, but it's them too, right? It's your neighbor out in their front yard doing whatever it is they do or in their backyard across the wall doing whatever it is they're doing like out there at that moment. Your life has an audience. When Jesus' audience looked at him, do you know what the one thing that they consistently would have understood and seen every time they saw him? Right? You can look and you're like, he taught a lot of amazing lessons, but there's one consistent pattern all the way through. And it's this, that the kingdom of God had come near, which quite simply just means this. God is not nearly as far away from these people as they thought. And you see everyone encounter that again and again in the audience of the life of Jesus. You see this in the life of the disciples. That's why they're chasing them around the sea just to get to where they're going. That's why they're running after them without a plan, without a picnic, without food. They're just going. Why? Because, man, I want this. Their life has an audience. So, friends, just like the disciples, just like Christ, if your life has an audience, can I ask you the following question? And it's this. What is it that you want them to see? I want you to wrestle with that. Not as a weight or a burden of how you need to do better, try harder. No, if these are people that you care about out of the goodness and the cares of your heart, what are the things you want to bring out? When you make that top of mind, when you allow that to actually be expressed out, 
You get to step into, thing, step into things with intention and purpose and potential versus just waiting to see what happens. God wants to use your life to impact the life of somebody else and your life has an audience. So what do you want them to see? So let me go back to Luke chapter nine. The story continues because the crowd begins to get hungry. Luke chapter nine, back to verse 12, it says, now the day began to wear away. It's beginning to be evening. And the 12, that's the 12 disciples, came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. And this is really interesting, I think, what what happens here. See, the crowd, like I said, has followed them to that desolate place. And now the disciples are staring into the face of all of these people, and it's become evening. And if it's a desolate place, there's no resources. There's not a store. There's not the ability to go get the things, even if they wanted to. And the disciples go to Jesus, and they say, hey, you know, all these people that you have gathered, get rid of them. All these people that you have gathered, send them away. Like, like make them go. And there's two ways that we can interpret that when the Bible says, for we are in a desolate place. One way is, Jesus, you promised we could go to a desolate place where people are not, and clearly people are here, and I need you to take care of it. The other way that you can take it is, we're in a place where we can't take care of the people that are here, and we need you to send them away because we do not have the things that we need to do what we need to do. So send them away. Either way, both seem pretty valid at this particular moment, don't they? Jesus looks at the disciples. He's, remember this, Jesus is the one who's been ministering to these people all day. Jesus is the one who's been proclaiming the kingdom of God. Jesus is the one who's been healing them. The disciples go, Jesus, I need you to wrap it up and you need to send them away. And Jesus turns to the disciples, people like me and people like you, and he says, you give them something to eat. If I am a disciple, in that moment, <laughs> I'm just gonna let you know, I have some things flag up in my head all of a sudden. I have some tensions and some issues that I, I, I kind of want to voice. I mean, think about this. First and foremost, I'd be like, Jesus, you told us we were going on a retreat. You told us nobody would be there. You told us this would be a desolate place, and it is not. There are people everywhere, and you could have sent them away, but you gathered them. You saw them as sheep without a shepherd, and you became their shepherd, and you did all that. And so, Jesus, you're like the water into wine guy. That's not me. That's you. Do your thing. Like, feed them. That's you. I'm serious. There's a part of me I'd look and be like, I don't know how to feed these people. You can, apparently you can do a lot with this other stuff. Like you do it. It's your job. You have been the one who gathered all these people. And I would look and I'd be like, in second, Jesus, this is not my responsibility. You did all of this. Not my circus, not my monkeys. Right? This is for you. I would. And it's just because I'd be tired and I'm already overwhelmed at all the things that have happened previously and all this stuff. And yet Jesus doesn't do this. He looks back at the disciples and he goes, you feed them. You give them something to eat. See, God wants to use your life to impact the lives of others. And what I want you to know is that that is an invitation from God, not necessarily an obligation, because it's how he chooses to work. He doesn't have to do it, but it's how he chooses to work. That brings me to the second point I want to make here this morning, and it's this. God wants to use your life to tell his story. God wants to use your life to tell his story. Think about this. Jesus could have just fed the crowd. He could have. They could have been like, we don't have enough to eat. There's a bunch of people, they're hungry. And he could have said, hey, bring me the loaves and the fish. Hand me a basket. Yep, I broke the bread. I did the thing. I multiplied it. Okay, just go like here. Jesus could have walked out, handed it to the first person and been like, just keep passing around. It'll be fine. He could have done it. He did not need to use the disciples. I mean, think about this really honestly for two seconds. He didn't need to use the 12, right? 
He could have just done it, handed the people the thing and started to pass it around, yielded the exact same net result. But he doesn't. He puts the task in front of the disciples. Jesus could have come to the earth just to essentially be the Messiah, this one who who lives among us and shows us that God is near and then dies and rises again, the forgiveness of sins, and says, put your faith in me, and there's new life, and then he leaves. And he could have just done all of this. Like, he could have just done that. But he doesn't, does he? He employs a group of people and essentially establishes the church so that individual after individual, generation after generation, can continue to have their story infused into the larger story of God because that is how God works. That's apparently how he chooses to do this. God doesn't need, he's God. He's the all-powerful being in the universe. He doesn't need this, but for whatever reason, God wants to use your life, to use my life, to tell his story. I remember 16 years ago, I was sitting down in here and I was interviewing um, for a job with Glenn. I was living in Colorado at the time and they were interviewing me to become, become a youth pastor out here. And it was going well. And we got to a place where Glenn just looked and he said, Ryan, I just want to know, do you have any hesitations or are there any like red flags or things that come up where you just go, I don't know if this fits me very well. And I, I said, no, most of this is really, really great. I, I love students. Um, I, I love families. Like I would love to help run a program. I, I, I like to teach sometimes. Like I, I'd be happy to do some of this stuff. Yes, that all sounds great. And I said, but I do have one thing that I really don't like to do and that I'm not great at. And I want to be honest about it with you. Uh, and he looked at me confused and concerned. He said, what is that? And I said, I'm not very good at hospital visits and I don't like them. That's what I said. And he said, why? And I said, well, because my mom had had a really serious bout of cancer. That was one of the more difficult times in my life. And so for me, whenever I step into a hospital, there's all these feelings that pop up and there's all these moments. And when I step into a surgery, sometimes my own stuff gets in the way and I have a hard time being the right thing for other people and I'm still wrestling with that. And so I'm just really, really nervous because I know it costs us. There's like a weekly rotation of pastors who do hospital visits and that'll be a part of what I do. And I just wanted to be honest about that. And Glenn being so Glenn, and if you can imagine him doing this, I would, I would wonder, uh, is he just looked at me with a big smile on his face. He goes, ah, oh, yeah, I'm not worried about that at all. And that was it. And I was like, welcome to the team. Like that's how that piece went. And I was like, Okay, so I got a job here and I start working. And I remember the first time I had to go do a hospital visit. I woke up and I put on like full dress clothes. Like I want to look the part. I want to do the things. I'm so nervous. Like I just, I'm, I'm putting, you guys wouldn't recognize me. You'd be like, you going to a job interview? No, I'm going to a hospital. Like that's how I, how I like put on full dress clothes and I get in the car and I'm so nervous. So I'm just like, God, please help me with this and help me to calm my own nerves and help me just to have the right things to say. And I don't want to fix things. I just want to care and help me to love this person. And then halfway through the drive, my praying shifts to like, God, why are you doing this to me? Why are you dragging me through this? I was really clear. I don't like this. I don't want to do this. I'm not good at it. Like, why, why is this still in front of me? And then I get to the hospital and I take a deep breath and I walk inside of a room and there's a woman sitting on a bed and she looks at me and I say, hi, I'm one of the pastors at Casas. I'm newer, so you probably don't know me, but I'd love to pray for you. I just want to see how you're doing. And she says, weren't any of the other pastors available to come today? It gets so much worse, guys. She, and I said, I don't know if they're available or not. All I know is I'm here to pray for you. And she goes, well, I guess I'll have to deal with the B team today. <laughs> I know. And I was just like, I guess you will. Ha ha. And I just prayed. Like I walked out of there and in my head, I'm like, see God, I told you. Like, see, I told you I'm not the guy. I'm not the one who's supposed to go do this. And I go driving to the next hospital. And I go to the VA hospital and I go walking into a room of a guy that I have never met before. And I walk in and, and, and I say, hey, I'm, I'm an, one of the pastors at Casas. And I do the thing again. I'm, I'm new, so you probably don't know me. And he goes, what's Casas? And I went, oh, man, it's a church. 
It's not my church. Okay. Well, I'm a pastor at that church. And apparently all you need to know is this. somebody cares about you and called us and just was wondering if we would come and pray with you. And, and if that would be a blessing to you, I would love to do that. And he goes, well, you're not my pastor. So maybe there's a reason you're here. Why don't you sit down and start telling, and he's really intense. He goes, why don't you sit down and start telling me all the personal things about your life and I'll pray for you before I talk to a total stranger. And I said, okay. So I sat down and I was like, well, I just moved here and I'm a pastor and I'm trying to figure things out. We don't have a house yet. And there's, yeah, here's, here's how you can pray for me. And, and he never prays for me, but I look. And in that moment, I see there's a woman sitting in the corner of the room, like in the dark, very quietly. I didn't even notice her. And I, know, I look over and he goes, oh, that's my wife's sister. She's also my lover. And I was like, God, what are you doing? If that made you feel uncomfortable, me too. Yeah, this is how I felt too, probably more so. I was in the room, you guys. And so I was like, what are you doing? And I don't know what to say right now. And I just looked at him and I said, is, is your wife okay with all that? And he goes, oh, don't worry, she's dead. And I said, okay. Well, I'm really sorry for your loss. And he goes, yeah, me too. And he goes, we sat on the couch next to her body for a full day before we called the fire department. And I was like, you sat next to a dead body for a day? Now, at this point, I have so many questions. I have so many things that I don't know what to do. And I, what do you guys do? What would you say? Like, I don't know what to do. They don't train you for this. There's not a class for this. And I was already like, ah, uh, okay. Well, it sounds like you've been through some really tough things in your life. And it sounds like you're still going through a really tough thing now because you're here in a hospital room and clearly you just had an operation. And so I'd love to pray for you if you would be okay with that. And he goes, yeah, you can pray for my leg. I just had surgery on it. So I say, okay. So I start praying for his leg and I pray that God would heal him. And I pray that he would, you know, have a speedy recovery and that he'd be up on his feet in no time and that rehab would go well. And he just starts laughing out loud. And I pause and I say something wrong and he pulls back the sheets and he's a double amputee. And his surgery was to remove his leg, his other one. So I just prayed for a man with no legs about like getting back on his feet and having a speedy recovery and rehab. Like, do you guys hear how bad this is going? Do you hear this? So uh, this is what happened. And I just look and I'm like, okay, so can I pray for, for this? And he goes, yeah, I'd appreciate it if you would. And I said, okay. And he stops laughing at me because he's a veteran and, and, just dry humor and he's okay so I pray for him and I say amen and I'm just like I gotta get out of here this is a this is a disaster I gotta leave and I go walking out just sign and I'm like God I should never do a hospital visit ever again I told you this is gonna be terrible I told you I'm not the right person I told you this is awful and as I go walking out of the room I go hey thanks for letting me pray with you it was actually really nice to meet you and he goes yeah thank you for it was nice to meet you too and then he says I, know, I don't normally feel like God shows up in my life and yet you came walking in here today and that means a lot. Thank you. Crazy story that went terribly. Apparently, I don't know if you know this, but you can show up to a hospital room, pray for healing for a man with no legs about his legs and he can still, and God can still tell his great story through your crazy moment in that man's life. Guys, you don't need to be good at this. I was terrible. 
If you're sitting here and you're like, so there's an audience in my life and it's my neighbors. If you're sitting in here and you're saying there's an audience in my life and it's my family and it's my friends or it's these people, I don't care who it is. I don't care where it is. I don't care whatever the situation might be. If you're like, yeah, I'm just not very good at that. You don't have to be for God to tell his story through your life. Apparently you can show up and be miserably awful and God still does great work through this whole thing. You just have to show up. And you have to recognize your life has purpose and potential and value because God wants to use your life to impact the life of somebody else. This is huge. This is huge. Think about the people who are around you. God wants to use you and your life to help tell his story. And this brings me to my third point here this morning. Don't let what you lack tell your story. This is big. God wants to use your life to impact the life of somebody else. And you have an audience, so don't let what you lack begin to tell your story because it just stops things altogether sometimes. And the reason I say this, and I wish I would have gotten here a little sooner in our morning, if I'm really honest, I see this around me so much. I, this is such a struggle. I see this in me. Think about what I did. I was like, I'm not good at hospital visits. I'm not the right guy. I lack the expertise, the knowledge, and my previous experiences and things. And here's my whole laundry list of lack. And so I can't, I won't, I shouldn't, I'm not. I want to let my lack tell the story at times. And I just am like, yeah, my lack is the biggest thing in the world. It's bigger than God sometimes. It needs to tell the, the story. It can't. And the thing God continues to teach me again and again and again, and he did it through hospital visits. I have done more hospital visits than I can count now. I'm no longer scared of them. If you ever need someone to visit in the hospital, by all means, I would love to do that. Because you know what I've learned? I just get to show up. It may not be pretty, you guys. But I get to show up and love a person and care and God gets to do extraordinary things with it and that is quite enough. And the same is true for you in your life. Don't let what you lack tell your story. Luke chapter nine, looking at verse 13. But he, Jesus said to them, you give them something to eat. And the disciples said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish. Lack. Unless we're to go buy food for all these people, which we don't have, we're in a desolate place. Lack. For there were about 5,000 men. There's too many. We're not enough. Lack. And he, Jesus, said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And so they did. And they had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, said a blessing over them. This would have been common practice in that day. And then he broke the loaves, gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. That word satisfied means everyone had just enough. Everybody got to have what they needed. They ate their fill. And what was left over, did you catch those words? Left over. There were leftovers, was picked up. 12 baskets of broken pieces. 12 baskets, why? Because there were 12 disciples carrying them. And there's broken pieces left over. Jesus essentially says, you give them something to eat. And the disciples respond and they wanna let their lack tell the story. I can't because of this. I can't because of that. I won't because of this. We don't have, we, we're, we're not equipped. We're not ready. This isn't right. We're tired. This is a desolate place. no. And this is what we're tempted to do when we want to let our lack tell the story. And yet Jesus goes, just go get the loaves and the fish and trust me with them. Just, just give, you don't have to know how to feed 5,000 people. Just walk around and break the bread that you have and just start to hand some of that out and let me do the rest. Let me do the best thing. You know what's crazy about this story? I bet you a lot of us have maybe heard this story at some point in time and you've heard stories about like, a little boy in his lunch, and you've heard stories about all these other things. Luke is so clear with this. In Luke, if you read all the way through chapter nine, what you realize is that the focal point of all of chapter nine is the disciples. Do you know what we should read at the end of this miracle? And the crowd went wild. 
We should. What we should read at the end of this miracle is, and 5,000 people were like, how can it be that he can feed all of us with just this little boy's lunch? And man, that's crazy. And I got to eat and oh my goodness. There should be an uproar. There should be craziness after this. It's all silent. You don't hear any of that in the story, do you? Luke leaves, there's none of it. What, you, what you're left with is the disciples who it says, go and feed them. And then they get it broken up into whatever it was and they go carry it around with their 12 baskets. You wanna know why? This miracle wasn't for the 5,000 people. This miracle was for 12 people because Jesus needs to let them know, don't let lack be the thing that tells your story. Because one day Jesus isn't going to be there with them and they're going to need to go plant the church. I mean, he's going to be in here, but he's not going to be in front of them doing all of the things. They're going to need to step out and they're going to need to say some things and love some people and start a movement. And in that moment, it would be so easy for them to go, we're not the right people. We're not the religiously trained people. We didn't make it when we were 14. Jesus is gone. We've lost our rabbi. I don't know what to do. We can't do any of this. And this singular moment is this profound lesson for the disciples to look and recognize that their lack doesn't get to be what tells the story that God does. And that if all you have is just a little, bring that and that is plenty for God to work with. And I tell you this, I say it for me, I say it for you here today because I really believe God wants to impact the life of someone else in your life. He wants to use your life to impact somebody else's life. And I just promise you, there's gonna come a moment where you're like, I'm, I'm uncomfortable, I can't do it. I'm, I'm too extroverted and that's too weird. I'm too introverted and that's too much. I, I don't have the skill set. I don't have the abilities. I don't have what it takes. I'm, I, I just feel overwhelmed by this. That's too big of a task. That's too, too much over here. You ever stare into the face of a problem with so much complexity that you look at it and you're suddenly aware of all of your lack? You're suddenly aware of all the things you don't know and can't do and you just want to walk away from it? The disciples stare into the crowd of 5,000 people and Jesus looks and he says, you feed them and they're holding a couple loaves and some fish it's overwhelming. And lack could so easily tell the story, but instead Jesus gets to through their life. And isn't that a powerful thing? You know that same thing is true for you. I promise you there's a moment in your life right now where there's somebody who needs you and I know you feel like you lack. Sometimes you're like me and you're like, I don't know the right words. Sometimes you're like me and you're like, I've got some past experience that, man, keeps me from it. Do you know what my past experience has taught me about hospitals? is that what I've walked through in a hospital actually makes me a pretty good person to sit in the hospital with somebody else. I was so scared of it for so long and now it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to me anymore. <laughs> there's some place in your life where I promise you there's this struggle with what it is that you lack and I just want you to know God's not really worried about it. I think maybe that's why Glenn just smiled at me and said, oh, you're gonna be just fine. <laughs> because God wants to do something through your life. And here's the truth. Trust that if God wants to provide through you, that he will also provide for you. You just keep passing out loaves and fishes. Keep passing out whatever it is that you have and see the goodness and the beauty of what it is that God does through you. Sometimes it'll be big. Sometimes you won't even get to see the outcome and that's okay. Sometimes the miracle's for others. Sometimes the goodness of the thing is for you. You just keep showing up because you're a part of the very plan of God and your life has potential and purpose embedded and infused into it. Friends, I say all of this because like the disciples, and I know I've said this so many times, but I want it to sink in. God is gonna use your life to impact someone's life brimming with purpose and opportunity, this life that you wake up every day to because your life has an audience. And so you get to choose when it comes to these people around you that you care about what is it that you want them to see? What is it that you want them to hear?
And quite frankly, God could do it all by himself, but there's this really beautiful thing where he keeps inviting me and you to tell his great story through our lives. So just be open to it. Just step into the next moment and apparently you can do a really bad job at it. It didn't go great, right? Just keep stepping in with courage and faith and trust him for it. And don't let what you lack tell your story. Your lack, whatever it might be, is simply God's opportunity to show you how much he can make with the little you bring to the table. And frankly, it's always enough. Let me pray. God, we come before you today. And I just ask, Lord, for courage. I ask for trust. Help us to love the people around us. Lord, maybe, maybe perhaps today's the very first time someone in this room has just heard that you want to partner with their lives. And man, I pray that that would breathe significance into their lives. Man, I pray that that would breathe purpose into each of our lives. Open our eyes to it. Open our eyes to the people around us. Show us this, the opportunities to step into. And Lord, even in the little bit that we bring, even in the times we make mistakes, even when it goes awry, Lord, we just trust you for it. Do great things. Keep telling your story that you are closer than this world ever even imagined and that your love and your grace is powerful even still. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.